Hi, I'm Jessica from Tudor Time Machine. Before we start the next episode, I wanted to let you know that we're offering our very first line of Tudor Time Machine merch. So these six items are only available until November 30th. Then they're history. See what I did there? Go to our Facebook page and hit the Shop Now button to see our Tudorific designs, the best pod swag out there. This inaugural offering is 10% off, so don't miss these items that declare your interest and your style. And enjoy this episode of the Tudor Time Machine podcast. Hey-ho, Tudor-minded people. I'm Gage. I'm Jessica. We're Tudor Time Machine, and this is episode 35 of our podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. If you're new here, it's best to start at episode one. This is a story project, and it goes in order. And I can't tell you how excited we are to be reaching thousands of Tudor-minded people from all over the world. It's it's incredible. And if you're enjoying it, support us by buying some Tudorific swag. Go to our Tudor Time Machine Facebook page, hit the shop button, and buy, buy, buy. We would really appreciate your support. Yes, and model your favorite Tudor Time Machine apparel, and we'll feature you on Instagram. In our last episode, we followed Constance and Philomena to Goldsmiths Hall as they searched for Thomas Wyatt's Pomander. Now we're going back to 1527 to see what Margaret Wyatt has planned for her errant brother, Sir Thomas. After the reading, we'll have some fun discussing the history beyond our tale and making connections between then and now. Read on, Jesse. Chapter 35, 1527, The Palace of Greenwich, in which Margaret sends her brother away for his own good. Hell on earth, she was here. Wyatt knew it. His packed trunk, his empty room. Where was the bitch? Thomas, an upending moment as he tried to understand why his sister Margaret and not his hated wife stood before him. She is come to torment me, he said hoarsely. Oh, Thomas, I beg your mercy. The bitch is not here. She is far away at Arlington. It is I who packed your trunk for you. Ah, Thomas, I have made a decision. One that involves my packed trunk? Margaret looked at her pouting brother. How she loved him, and wished to God in heaven he had an ounce of sense. I have planned an adventure for you, she could see his hackles rise. You believe me to be five, hoping for my day to be breached? You give unto your will, and pound your fists as one who is five. Hardly flattering, sister. She thought of the last time she had tried to dissuade him from seeing Anne. He moaned and fretted. He did not care that Anne's rooms were strides from the king's own. He would not control his stampeding desire. Margaret had been forced to cover as Thomas and Anne made a racket behind the door. I have arranged for you to travel with John Russell. You will enjoy yourself. You will have a fine journey. I shit on your kindness. You think I do not understand your ploy? You wish to separate me from Anne. I never thought to fool you, brother, only to aid you, to help you be wise. This triangle between you and the king and Anne can only bring trouble. The queen will protect me. She was overjoyed with my translation of Plutarch. Did you not note the tear in her eye when I presented it to her? That tear has nothing to do with noble tracts. Queen Catherine cries over her ignoble spouse and his desire for Anne Boleyn. By my troth, brother, this court is too hot for you. He turned and flung his trunk open. He saw that she had packed his Dante and his Petrarch on top. He cursed how well she knew him. 
Wisdom is for those who have not passion, who lodge in their own perceived good sense. I will not go. He always struck out at her, but it did not hurt her. Margaret did not want to have good sense. Nature had foisted it on her, and she had to act on it as strongly as he had to act on his passion. He could not understand her. I know you love Anne. I see it is deep in you. That is why you must away. Say truly. Do you believe you can control yourself, brother? Rage filled his face. You have nothing. You have no spleen, no bile. You are an empty vessel. I cannot bear that you were born my sister. Get out! Margaret waited for it to pass. He knew she spoke sense, or he would not lose his temper so quickly. And he was not unpacking, but staring into the trunk. He turned on her. What punishment have you devised if I do not do as you ask? As terrible a punishment as I can manage, I have already spoken to Cromwell. He will summon your wife to court if you do not depart. Well done, sister. Margaret knew it was base of her to involve the bitch, but she had to win. He was pacing about the room, running his fingers through his hair. And what of the king? He will never give me leave. You are mistaken, Thomas. The king is pleased that you are leaving, which is all the more reason to go. Why have you no vice I can leverage against you? I must go to Anne and bid her adieu. Margaret stood firm in the door. You cannot. Your trunk is packed because you will leave when the men arrive. I will go to her. Do not go to her now. The king is with her. Write to her. I will deliver it. Croesus, you think me the village idiot? You will not deliver it. You hatched this plot. How long ago? Are you scripted as in a play? Did you consider what I might say? I curse God for giving me a sister. She prepared herself for another onslaught, but the porters arrived, and she followed Thomas down the water stairs. He was not speaking to her. She knew better than to try to balm the wound. As he greeted Sir John and kissed her goodbye for show, she whispered in his ear, Fortune may be on your side. This very day the sweat may come upon me. You will outlive me, Margaret. Your blood has never seen a boil. She watched the boat rock away on the Thames. She was head and he was heart. It was so with siblings. She found an itch of resentment. Would she not miss him as much as Anne would and without the lust to make it heady? She did not want him to go. He made her do it because he had no self-control. Yet who would she speak with in the morning? Who would tell her something unusual? Who would know her motives? Her limbs became heavy as he became increasingly smaller. He had turned his back on her. She wished him to turn and wave, as much as any heroine in a drama. He would not. He was stubborn. Yet when he came home, she would still be his sister. He would be out of money. He would appeal to her. With these thoughts to bolster her, she made her way back up the hill, still churning inside as she entered the hall. She did not even lift an arm to help the servant as he pulled off her outerwear. She knew where to find Anne. She would be dressing in her chamber. She would go to her and finish what she had begun. Thomas was moving further away every second, thank God. Margaret hated to lie, but soon all these lies would be forgiven, and Anne was hardened. Men had shown themselves changeable before now. Anne Boleyn, with her wit and strength, this would not even surprise her. It would be nothing. Margaret did not need to worry. Anne was in her shift, the light behind her, the cut of her body worthy of the great painters. And they would have to be great to make her likeness, because her beauty was so odd. An artist with an eye and great skill. Margaret, Anne said as her kirtle went over her head to be tied behind. 
What do you, stranded there, reflective and serious, come in? I have not had time free. Tell me of yourself, and you can mention your little brother if you do not mind. Anne's happy face made Margaret want to gouge out her own eyes. I have some news of my brother. Tell me. Margaret heard her heart pounding in her ears in a way she had not expected. She was not a talented liar. How could she have imagined Anne, easy to mislead? Anne, of all people. Margaret felt she would just drift over to the window to look out. She could not look in her friend's face. You behave strangely. Has Thomas taken ill? You come to find me here with cause, Margaret. Margaret thought how Anne had a fine prospect from this window. The privy garden, the rows of perfect trees and flowers. This chamber was one given to a king's favourite, though she was the queen's enemy. Anne divided the court into those whose loyalties lay with Queen Catherine and those whose ambition lay with Lady Anne. How had her brother imagined that fawning on Henry's chosen one would be anything other than a doomsday? They were both sick, sick, sick. Anne, my brother has left to Venice with Sir John Russell. They will continue to roam and be gone some twelve months. Thomas thought it prudent. Leave me! Anne gestured her servants out and came to stand so strong before her that Margaret wanted to run. What do you say? Thomas cares for prudence and leaves me just so? Anne's eyes were frightening. Margaret planted her feet. He has sense. He has not, and you have never thought so. He loves me far past sense. Margaret stuck to her rehearsed line. He left of his own will, but not for prudence. That is a lie. A wail left Anne, and she grabbed Margaret. Tears began to fall down her face, and Margaret found she was crying as well. Forgive me. Anne wailed. He loves some other cunt. The wild crying and profanity somehow righted Margaret's mind, and she was able to continue. My heart is broken for you. He does not love me. Oh, God. Oh, God. He has left who knows why. You say, Margaret, but you will not tell me. If he left for good sense, he does not love me, and if he left for another, he does not love me. Will you tell me true? Which did he leave me for? Anne, he left for good sense. Then he never cared for me. Who is she? ambition. You dare to mock me with a metaphorical love? Margaret was searching for a way to end this terrible moment. My cruel brother sends me to break your heart and I have not the right words. I am not a poet. He told me he will leave and I must bring you the news and I made haste. I thought it the right thing to do. Anne had the heels of her hands in her eyes, trying to staunch the flow of tears. I cannot blame you. God, the pierce of loneliness. Leave me, Margaret. The humiliation of the abandoned lover despises witness. Anne shut the door behind her, but Margaret could not tear herself away from the coughing sobs heard through the heavy wood. She would burn in hell for the lies she had told. Yet Anne would be the king's mistress without reserve, and Thomas would be safe. She had done them both a service. Margaret just feels that she has no choice but to get her brother out of England. He cannot be trusted around Anne Boleyn. Thomas Wyatt's departure for this ambassadorial trip, it's actually a historical fact. And it's very probable that Henry was very happy to see Wyatt go because of his intimacy with Anne. Wyatt went into the service of John Russell, later the first Earl of Bedford, who was at that time the special ambassador to Rome. John Russell was the father of Francis Russell, second Earl of Bedford, who lent Princess Cecilia his house in 1565. John Russell was the grandfather of Lady Anne Russell, the lady-in-waiting to Elizabeth I. That's in our story. Right. So it's all, everybody's, you know, everybody's all connected. 
This first Earl of Bedford was 18 years Wyatt Sr., and he was a very important person at court, very tight with Henry and with Cardinal Wolsey. So this trip was a great opportunity for Wyatt. But, oh youth. Oh dear. (laughs) Apparently Wyatt pissed Russell off because he went AWOL in Italy. Which sounds innocent enough to us. You know, a young lad eating pasta, drinking Chianti, admiring the countryside. I mean, what's the harm in that, right? Sounds fun. But Italy, which remember was not a united country until the 19th century, but a group of rival states, was in the middle of the War of the League of Cognac. And this war, which dragged on for four years between 1526 and 1530, it was essentially a power struggle between Pope Clement and Charles V of Spain. And Charles V of Spain was Catherine of Aragon's nephew. Right. And he was a Habsburg. And as well as having dominion over all of Spain, He was also the Holy Roman Emperor. He was the guy in Europe. The empire was enormous at that time. Spain, modern Germany, Austria, Switzerland, the Netherlands, and parts of northern Italy, as well as the southern states of Naples, Sardinia, and Sicily. Of course, Pope Clement was very concerned that Charles V just had too much power. So he made a treaty with Spain's number one enemy, France. The Duchy of Milan and the Republic of Venice all came into this alliance, which was known as the League of Cognac. So its main goal in 1527 was to drive the armies of Charles V out of northern Italy. England did not sign the pact, but Henry agreed to lend support and troops to the League. Which is interesting because England had aligned with Charles against the French some years earlier. So England was kind of flipping and flopping in its allegiances. Yes, you would think England would always consider France to be its main enemy, but Henry did not want to go against the Pope. No, in 1526, he did not want to go against the Pope, despite what happened later on. Because at this time, Henry was still in the Vatican's good graces and proudly sported the name Pope Leo X had bestowed on him in 1521, Defender of the Faith, which is pretty ironic given what's going to happen in the future, right? It's true. And in this war, England threw in its hand with Spain. France against Spain. I, I mean, allegiances in Europe went back and forth and back and forth in, in this major power struggle between the Pope and the Holy Roman Emperor. It was a very tumultuous time. I mean, Europe was just constantly in, in an uproar. Plus, Martin Luther posted his 99 Theses in 1517. So all of Europe is splintering along religious lines. Anyway, when the Earl of Bedford and Wyatt arrived on the Italian peninsula, the whole place was just in chaos. Having gotten safely to Rome, they had a further mission to Venice, but Russell, the Earl of Bedford, fell from his horse. And while he was recovering, Wyatt went north onto Venice alone. You know, so far so good. He was supposed to return to Rome via Bologna and Florence, but he was really stupid. Or just a 24-year-old guy not yet able to make logical decisions with his frontal cortex instead of his emotional amygdala. Just so. Being 24 and without permission, he decided to go on a little detour to Feria, which was 
just chalk a block with tough guy mercenaries from all over the Holy Roman Empire on the side of Charles V, who were well aware that England was on the side of their enemies, the League of Cognac. It was a little bit like an American going AWOL in North Korea. No good could come of it. Right, of course, and Wyatt was immediately captured. And knowing his status and his proximity to the English king, these troops, these mercenaries, began negotiations for a ransom. Still, that was a good outcome. If he had been any less important a courtier, they might have killed him. Well, they demanded 3,000 ducats, which is well over half a million dollars in today's money. And nobody was running to pay that. <laughs> <laughs> it's not entirely clear from the state papers what enabled Wyatt's release. One letter to Wolsey from Rome complains of Wyatt's recklessness and says that the ransom was paid. But another letter from Russell to Wolsey claims that Wyatt escaped. And it would be kind of fun to know the details of that daring do. I know. Our man Wyatt, weaponless, half-starved, <laughs> single-handedly battles his way through a hundred armed Italian thugs. Or maybe he disguised himself as a servant and stole through the sleeping camp in the dark of a moonless night. <laughs> would be a good story. It would be. But probably it was more boring and costly and pissed off Pope Clement. And he sent the 3,000 ducats and a chagrined Wyatt was escorted back to his boss, the Earl of Bedford. I feel like that's probably what happened because don't you feel like if Wyatt had escaped in some incredible way, he would have written about it and people would have, it would have become like lore. Either way, whether he escaped or the ransom or the whole situation says something about, you know, our poet's character. His biographer, William Siddons, puts it this way, quote, this incident in the Italian journey may illustrate a certain daring, a heedlessness of consequences which seems to have marked his character at this time and which betrayed him into situations of unjustifiable exposure. You it, can tell this <laughs> biography was probably written in like 1905. Yes. But basically, you know, at this point, Wyatt was a reckless young man. And in our story, Thomas White is certainly reckless and he certainly takes chances, such as continuing his infatuation with Anne Boleyn. Yeah, and we think he really did continue that infatuation. And a lot of his poetry bears that out, you know, despite the danger of Henry's desire for Anne. Wyatt considers himself as free as Henry at this point. As he says in another chapter, Henry is also married. Yeah, Wyatt separated from his wife Elizabeth Brooke at about this time. He said the breakup of their marriage was chiefly her fault. Surprise, surprise, <laughs> right? And accused her of adultery, although she was never linked with one man. So hmm. it's really hard to know if that, if that was the case. You know, I don't know. We, we don't have her side of the story. And her infidelity would be the only excuse Wyatt would have for not living with her at this time. And we, we've talked about this divorce from bed and board before in other chapters. But in this time period, being married gave each member of the couple a legal right to have sex with their spouse. And therefore, they legally had to live together unless a separation was allowed. This kind of legal separation meant that the couple could live separately, but that Wyatt would still need to maintain his wife legally. So that's support her, pay for her. And also his heir, his child, mm -hmm. Thomas the Younger, was still considered legitimate. 
but that neither Elizabeth nor Sir Thomas Wyatt the Elder could remarry. But this kind of divorce could be renegotiated, especially with the king's intervention. Henry was famously very dis disapproving of any kind of separation of couples, which again is a big irony. And Margaret uses this threat of Elizabeth Brooke being summoned to court by royal order as an incentive to get Wyatt out of town. And the king could compel Wyatt to live with his wife. Henry had that kind of power in your personal life. Mm. Of course. He's a big fat hypocrite. Yes, he's a big fat <laughs> hypocrite. When he left England, Thomas Wyatt probably didn't know that he was actually forwarding Henry's plans to end his own marriage with Catherine of Aragon. Because the real purpose of this ambassadorial mission Wyatt and John Russell had been sent on to the Vatican was to question Pope Clement on Henry's behalf about an annulment from Catherine of Aragon. The chances are that Wyatt was just carrying letters and papers from the king. He wouldn't actually have necessarily known that, that that was their mission. Specifically, what Henry wanted was for Clement to determine that his predecessor, that's the Pope's predecessor, Pope Julius, had erred in allowing Henry's marriage because of Catherine's previous marriage to his brother, Prince Arthur. But at this point, Henry was trying to keep the peace with Rome to make inquiries, not demands. There's a lot of historical questioning about who, you know, kind of turned Henry's eye to Leviticus in around 1526. This quote, if a man shall take his brother's wife, it is an unclean thing. They shall be childless, which was the basis supposedly for all of Henry's angst about his marriage. Of course, he could have accused the person of treason for calling his royal marriage and his wife, the queen, unclean. It seems unlikely that anyone at court in 1526 would have taken that risk. It was certainly not Cardinal Wolsey who put the thought of annulment into Henry's head. Wolsey was Henry's most senior counselor, his personal priest, and the Pope's legate or representative in England. So he had the king's ear on spiritual matters. But I read that when Henry first went to Wolsey with his concerns, Wolsey was all reassuring, oh no, don't worry, sire, your marriage to the queen is super duper clean. Nothing is more tidy. <laughs> Which was not exactly what Henry wanted to hear. No. Woolsey read the situation completely incorrectly. I mean, and Henry was doing that thing that people do when they don't want to be obvious about what they actually want. He sort of put out feelers without really committing. Like, I'm not saying I want an annulment. I'm just saying we should find out from the Pope if he thinks I upset God by marrying Catherine in the first place. You know, just to put my mind at rest. Like, you understand. <laughs> so, because Henry also decided to ignore Deuteronomy, which states that the brother of a man who dies without children is permitted, even encouraged, to marry the widow. And because Deuteronomy came after Leviticus, it kind of cancels Leviticus. Mm. I mean, I don't want to say, you know, I don't know exactly, but but, they, but that Deuteronomy should be sort of held above Le Leviticus. The Bible is full of contradictions. It's easy to pick and choose something to support your position. Yeah. And maybe Wolsey quoted Deuteronomy to Henry just to reassure him. And Henry was like, what? I can't hear you. 
the time this chapter takes place, Henry hadn't made any formal declaration about his marriage. He kept this his appeal to Pope Clement hushed up, and Catherine herself, poor Catherine, she just had no idea what was going on. I mean, obviously she knew that Henry was obsessed with having a male heir and that she herself would very likely not have any more children. I mean, Henry actually pretty much made that definite when he stopped sleeping with her in about 1524 or 25. But I don't think she ever would have imagined that he would try to annul their marriage after 20 years and go behind her back to the Pope. No, and also I don't think most courtiers considered it Appearances were kept up. Publicly, there was no rift. Celebrations went on with both of them attending. For example, on Shrove Tuesday in 1527, while his representatives were in Rome petitioning the Pope, (laughs) the king led a jousting tournament presided over by Catherine. And then they continued the celebration in her apartments. Yeah, and this was kind of another way that Henry was almost doing that thing that people do where he's sort of taking the responsibility of this entire line of questioning out of his own hands, right? He's sort of saying, I'm not bringing this up for myself. I'm bringing it up because it must be brought up because it's the right thing to do. He wasn't sleeping with Catherine at this time, but I still don't think that would have necessarily made alarm bells about him trying to annul their marriage go off in Catherine's head. Who knows? We can't get into Catherine's mind, but I'd certainly like to know. And, you know, what was going on with Anne Boleyn must have been very obvious. And also Anne was at all of these celebrations. As Catherine's maid of honor, she would have had to attend her mistress, the queen, even as she herself was receiving the king's attention, her own rooms and, you know, all these lavish gifts being piled on her by Henry. Yes, but again, I don't think that would have surprised anyone. Mm -hmm. Henry had other mistresses and he was very generous with them. It's hard to know how his liking for Anne was perceived and how seriously people took it. Yeah, I always wonder... Bessie Blount didn't get much for producing a, a son, did she? I mean, he, it's not like he he sort of set her up for life or anything. I mean, maybe I'm wrong about that. I'd certainly like to be corrected if anybody knows. But by, by 1527, you know, Henry had been after Anne for a while, at least a year. And as we know now, I mean, she wasn't sleeping with him. I don't know if the way he was treating Anne at this point was exceptional, the way the way he had treated other mistresses, and if that was something that set off an alarm bell for Catherine. I, I just don't know that. It must have been hard for Catherine to see him lavishing gifts on her, whatever she thought it right, meant. Right, and the attention. Yeah. You know, we know so much about Henry's line of thinking about an heir about a male heir and the need for a male heir. Do you think Queen Catherine thought that her daughter Mary's being next in line to the English throne was was acceptable, was something that was okay? Do you think she sympathized with Henry's fear of leaving his throne to a woman? Do you think she shared his obsessional fear? It seems crazy to us now that there was so much angst about a woman on the throne because it's chauvinistic and infuriating, but also because... Right, we have to put (laughs) those those things aside. Yes, but we have the example of the three of the longest reigning monarchs Mm -hmm. being women. In British history. In British history, yes. So Queen Elizabeth I, Victoria, and Elizabeth II. 
But at that time, Henry was freaking out about the succession. There was, of course, rampant misogyny, but also there had never been a female ruler, a queen regnant. That is a ruler who was equivalent to a king, mm -hmm. but who reigned in her own right in England or even in Scotland. There had right, this is before Mary of Scots. Too. Yes. Yeah. And so there had only been queen regents, which were temporary stand-ins ruling in place of an absent husband or an underage son. Right, and that's not to say that those regents weren't very powerful, but there is something very different about being a queen, a monarch in your own right, than being one because of a marriage. Because it, by definition, if you're one because of a marriage, you really are a stand-in until the real one can show up. You're waiting for your son to come of age, or your husband is away, or he's unwell. But, you know, being a queen in your own right is, is something that people can't, they can't take it away from you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like, it's different. Henry feared this a repeat of the 12th century when Henry I died without a male heir, and he named his daughter Matilda as his successor. And there was a civil war in England between Matilda and her cousin. And even though she actually made it to Westminster to be crowned, it was the citizens of London who wouldn't accept her and crown her. So she yeah. never became queen. So this nightmare scenario is in Henry's mind. But can I just also say, there were plenty of civil wars when there were two men. That is, were, I, I mean, it's, I mean, you know, it's not just... I mean, you're like, okay, that happened, but guess what? You guys have also been killing each other and throwing shit around forever. So, you know, <laughs> but why not? Blame the woman. Why but, not? But that was the nightmare scenario in Henry's mind. Yeah, and somehow that that civil war, that chaos was worse than the Wars of the Roses. Yeah, <laughs> which killed. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, whatever. If Mary were to be in line to the throne as the next right. monarch. And his successor. Yes. That would cause another civil war in like his mind. Matilda, yeah. yes. And then she would lose. She <laughs> would lose. And then the defeat of the Tudors would end their line and no one with his sperm would be <laughs> on the throne. And he found that very, very unacceptable. Very unacceptable. Whereas Catherine of Aragon had the example of her mother, Isabel of Castile, who was the queen regnant in her own right of yeah. Spain. And she could hold that up to Mary. And putting aside our modern assessment of Isabella's horrible policies towards the Jewish people and towards the Moorish people, she was, in the estimation of the 16th century, a great queen. And also, while Henry would like someone of his own sperm to be on the throne, I believe that Catherine of Aragon would have liked her own daughter to have I been agree. on the throne. Right, I agree. And I yeah. think she thought she deserved it. I mean, let's be honest. From Catherine of Aragon's was a more impressive line at this point than the Tudor line. Oh, much more that impressive. That was like diddly-poo at this yes. point. And Isabella had to fight her way to the throne, and the rival claim came from another woman, her niece. That's interesting. So which her, is interesting. her rival came from another woman. So, Just as yeah. Mary's did. Yeah. And Mary also had to claw her way to the throne. Right. I don't know if you clawed over little Jane Grey, but still, still it was it was another yeah. woman. And but clearly, if there were two women fighting for power in Spain, 
and people were both people were siding with one woman or the other the idea of a female ruler was they were much more comfortable with that idea that's true because the the choice would have only been a woman yes there wasn't anybody else vying for the throne i think catherine could definitely conceive Mm -hmm. of her daughter being a very strong leader and just as her mother isabella was and as i think she considered herself as well I do, but she was very well aware that she herself was not a queen regnant yes. of England. She was a queen regent. We talk about Spain and this sort of the the way they you know they had a, a female queen and they actually went on to have others, but you know France never had a queen regnant, not once from 400 to the last king in 1848. Wow, they really stuck to that <laughs> male winning. Well, because they had a different system, right, where the king could name his successor. Yes. And of course, he's never going to name a woman. It's interesting. But for all of Henry's maneuvers and all of his anxieties and marriages. And breaking up the English church, and <laughs> separating from the pope, and killing as, the monks, the dissolution of the monasteries. This sun, this North Star sun. <laughs> Mary Tudor still became the first queen of England in her own right. So fate won out in the yeah. end. And then Elizabeth really proved a woman could achieve a long-lived, stable reign. And she was an unmarried woman at that. So she was on her own. No, I know. It's, it's, it's one of those ironies of history that this man who was so obsessed with having a male line gave birth to the first female queen of England and then probably someone who is considered one of the greatest monarchs of England. It's, it's just one of those ironies of, of history. Henry couldn't see that, <laughs> despite what Shakespeare, the words that Shakespeare puts <laughs> in his mouth in his play Henry VIII, where Henry VIII has this speech about what a wonderful queen Elizabeth's going to be, which is really funny. But anyway, but in 1527, you know, Henry saw himself with very limited options for the succession none of which he liked. Catherine had had six pregnancies in nine years, which is very hard. Tough. Yeah, She'd only had one living daughter. And in 1525, Henry pretty much accepted that Catherine would not have any more children. And in that same year, he also had an accident that almost killed him, which seems to have made him think a great deal about the succession. Right, and his own mortality. And, you know, this accident was a, like a complete kind of macho fail because Henry was out hawking, and instead of going around a mud-filled ditch, he decided it would be a great idea to pole vault it with a stave. Like, you're the king, and you think, oh, I'll just risk everything by pole vaulting a ditch. <laughs> and, and not at 18, at 34. And the stave snapped, and Henry went head first into the mud. It was the kind of stunt that might be featured in the 16th century version of Jackass. <laughs> Regard my prowess, gentlemen. Then bam, the king was knocked unconscious in a foot of oozing mud. I mean, he would have drowned. He was knocked completely unconscious. What an embarrassing way to go. Senseless and suffocated by mud. I know. Well, apparently this brush with a dumbass death made Henry seriously consider his situation as a 34-year-old king with a 40-year-old wife and one legitimate daughter. He decided that maybe he would kind of try to play all his cards at the same time, and he brought his illegitimate son Fitzroy out of relative 
obscurity into the public eye. This kid was only six, but Henry had him brought to London with great pomp and circumstance, and Fitzroy was elevated to the peerage as the Duke of Richmond, which is an interesting title to bestow on him because it was actually the title that Henry VII held before he took the throne of England, and he claimed the throne of England based on that title. Henry gave Fitzroy his own semi-royal household, and he began to appear at court more often. Mm-hmm. As kind a, of putting him in the public eye. Mm-hmm. It was sort of a way to see if the public would accept him as a prince, you know. Because Henry, of course, was very aware that the citizenry of, of England were also going to be the people that would have to go along with whatever choice he made. Particularly yeah. London. Yeah, particularly London. And at the same time, you know, just to keep it all afloat, Henry sent the child princess Mary to, to her own royal household at Ludlow Castle, to preside over affairs in Wales, which again is interesting because essentially he was giving her the duties of the Princess of Wales, if not the actual title. So it also seemed as if he was sort of positioning her to take the throne. So he's got these two people at the same time. But simultaneously, (laughs) he's feeling out the possibility of an annulment and he's having Wolsey continue to seek out a political marriage for Mary. So he's just like trying everything. Yeah. yeah, he's kind of throwing it all up and seeing what will stick. And by 1527, Mary had already been considered as a wife to Charles V of Spain. It's interesting to think about that, like what would have happened if that marriage had been accepted because Henry wouldn't have sided with the Pope and it's just it's interesting how all these things would have fallen out differently but Charles V was 22 years her senior and you know that might have been acceptable if if Mary was older but she was very young at this point so the age difference made it impossible because Charles grew impatient for a wife I mean he wanted to have his own children so that he could secure his own succession And then Mary was offered as a wife to Francis I when his wife Claude died. But again, you know, that age difference was a problem. Mary wasn't really mature enough to start having children. And let's be honest, that was going to be the duty of of her as a queen. And because Francis and Francis was only three years younger than Henry himself, kind of moved on and negotiations began for Mary to wed Francis's son, the Dauphin, who was two years younger than her. That would have been a better age match. And they were aggressively pursuing this marriage, which some people feel is also the reason why Henry came into the League of Cognac, because he didn't want to undermine this marriage between the Dauphin and Mary. Yes, because Wolsey was still in negotiations with France about this royal coupling when Sir Thomas Wyatt and the Earl of Bedford went to the Vatican to sound out the Pope. Right, so Henry's doing something else that's going to undermine that marriage, even as he's keeping it going, because, you know, if they I mean, get the married, situation with Mary in France, and it must have been one of the reasons why, why Henry really needed, initially anyway, to keep this, you know, even the whisper of an annulment quiet. Because with an annulment from Catherine of Aragon, Princess Mary would have become illegitimate. And even to put it in the mind of Francis that that was even a possibility would have completely ended these marriage negotiations because Mary as an illegitimate child was useless to them. And 
it would just destroy her chances of a marriage with with anybody of any Europe, European royals. Henry the Eighth. <laughs> Henry also, even as he was pursuing all these yes. marriages with very, very, you know, he, I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't, he wouldn't be satisfied with a marriage to marry, to marry from a cat, from a powerful king to then be his heir. That's right. And Henry feared a powerful man like Charles V or Francis would take control of England if Mary was his queen. It's so weird, like he's pursuing all this stuff, but he's under, he also doesn't want it. Even a fantastic marriage for his daughter had this huge drawback in Henry's eyes. You know, that sort of desire for the line to come directly from him gave strikes against his most obvious male heir at this point his nephew by his sister Margaret, James VI of Scotland, who was born in 1512. But Henry didn't want this spawn of his old enemy, James V, to be king of England. It must have galled Henry that James V had a son and heir. And the only other male heir in the Tudor line was Henry, Earl of Lincoln, who was the son of Henry's sister, Mary Tudor, with her second husband, Charles Brandon. But Brandon was not of royal blood, and he was considered too low to father a line of Brandon kings. So Henry both feared a powerful father of <laughs> one of his sister's sons and a lowly father of one of his sister's sons. Basically, he just made it impossible for anything to, to suit him if it wasn't his son, his own son. So Henry saw the choices before him as his bastard, Fitzroy, Fitzroy his daughter, Princess Mary, an enemy Scott, or lowly Brandon's son. And in his mind, none of them were ideal. Okay, let's talk hypothetically, because we do like to do that. If Henry had not broken with Catherine and remarried five times, who do you think he would have named his heir? Fitzroy, for sure. Mm. He would have promoted him as king. Yeah, I think so, too. But it's, it's funny because even then, Mary would still have ended up on the throne because Fitzroy died in July of 1536. Only months after the beheading of Anne. I know. What a tumultuous time it must have been at court in 1536. And actually, Jane Seymour had a near miss <laughs> because... She got pregnant very soon after her marriage to Henry, but she actually had a miscarriage in December. At that moment, Henry was back with no male heir, having cut off Anne Boleyn's head. I know, but luckily for Jane, yeah. she got pregnant again pretty quickly. Because who knows what Henry would have done if she had not. No, indeed. But in this chapter, we're in 1527, and Margaret Wyatt could not have foreseen that Anne Boleyn would be Henry's second wife. She just wants to get her brother out of England so he does not have to have his head cut off by this jealous king. No, her, her desire is simple. Get her brother out of trouble. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Next time we'll return to 1565 and we'll look on at the New Year's celebrations at Elizabeth's court where the rivalry between Princess Cecilia and Queen Elizabeth is on full display. So please consider going to our page, hitting the shop button, and finding the Tudor swag that best suits you. We really, really appreciate and rely on your support. So join us next time for more Times Riddle and more Tudor-minded talk. Thank you.